Welcome to Tech Live. Stephanie Christopher here, CEO of the Executive Connection. We connect leaders with a trusted network of people who help them succeed. Stephanie, you've got a new person who is all about a new chapter in tech. And there's a whole other chapter in his life we're going to discuss today. But by way of introduction, let me take you to the beach at Waikiki in Hawaii. Two weeks ago, I'm sitting on the beach and someone nearby admired our beautiful setup, which is what we do on the beach. And he said, where are you from? And I said, oh, Sydney, Australia, where are you from? And he said, Canada. And I said, oh, my husband's Canadian, whereabouts? And he said, oh, we're about half an hour out of Gander. And I said, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm in the police force. We're very good friends with the police chief in Gander. So I said to him, in two weeks' time, I'm speaking to someone about Gander and his incredible experience 21 years ago. That week it was, actually. So let me introduce to you Elias Canaris, who is a keynote speaker and an author of a book that I am now in possession of called Leading from the Stop. Elias is the founder of the Insight and Strategy Group and was in fact for a period the president of the Global Speakers Federation. So with over 25 years experience in corporate and not-for-profit organisations, Elias is a thought leader in the area of resilience, leadership and building trust. He works with CEOs and their teams, building high-performing teams and navigating adversity and introducing trust as a business currency, which is very interesting. And here we get to my story. 20 years after 9-11, now 21, Elias Kanara shares an insider's view of being one of the diverted planes to Gander International Airport and lessons learnt during that fateful time. Elias Canaris, welcome to Tech Live. Steph, thanks for hosting me. It's an amazing story that so many people didn't know about, actually, Gander, until there was an article in something, maybe Vanity Fair, or there was quite a long article, and then the, sh the stage show, Come From Away, came out. Can you tell us, because I want to hear it from you, what happened why is Gander, Newfoundland, such an important town and feature in your conversations about resilience? Well, let me start off by making a statement. It all started on an ordinary Tuesday. Mm. And I was at my parents' house in Wimbledon, South London, packing, ready to go from London Heathrow to Chicago as part of an international speaking tour. And that's when I realised I had a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> now, now that's a problem it could be it could be a real problem but it, it turns out i just didn't have a tie now you might say elias really yeah. wardrobe malfunction you call that a wardrobe malfunction but the reality was i was flying business class this was 2001 yeah where you expected to dress up for the role yeah and to be honest as i uh, kissed my mum and hugged my dad as the taxi driver put my suitcases in the back of the cab and he drove me to Heathrow Airport, I was just focused on two things, getting a tie, number one, and number two, finishing a report that I had to hand back into the office on my return. And what were you going to speak on in this speaking tour? Well, it's interesting. Back then, I was involved in the telecommunications industry. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to talk about customer experience in terms of handling 
emergency calls. Oh, great. <laughs> great. It's ironic. Mayday, uh, mayday. <laughs> okay, so you got to Heathrow. Did you go to, what is it, Thomas Pink? Is that the... Um, no, it was, t- it was a tie rack back then. Oh, tie, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, tie rack. I've got it. Yeah, I mean, this, this dates the story because the tie rack's no longer even in yeah. business. So when we went there, got the tie, got myself to the lounge, again, number one priority, write the report. I don't think I was too unusual to many other executives at the time. The focus is production. Mm-hmm. How do we get that report? I thought, oh, I know. I've got a couple of hours on the plane. It's um, what an eight, ten-hour journey, so I can probably do some work on the aeroplane and then maybe the hotel finish it off, email it uh, back to the office. And halfway through the flight, my, my day got interrupted. I wasn't sure if it was the panicked look on the crew mm. or the sound I heard, which later I found out was the sound of them dumping fuel mm. that alerted me to an issue. And that's when Captain Mike Ballard, the pilot of UA929, turned around and said, ladies and gentlemen, can I first reassure you, there's nothing wrong with the aeroplane. However, there's been a significant incident in the USA and the Federal Aviation Authority has shut down all international airspace. As a result, we've been asked to divert to Newfoundland, Canada. And what happened on the plane? Well, the first thing that happened to me was that I had um, a thought, which was because we didn't know what this incident was. Mm. So the first thought was that maybe the president of the USA had been assassinated. Uh And I was followed very quickly by a second thought, which is, had they dropped a nuclear bomb on US soil? Wow. So you knew it was big from him saying all US airspace is closed. Absolutely. And it wasn't until we landed, uh, maybe half an hour later, Gander International Airport, one of 38 aeroplanes, that the pilot was able to come on and tell us what had happened and eventually piped in the BBC World Service. You have to understand, Steph, this was a day before smartphones, before in-flight Wi-Fi, social media. We had no idea Mm. of the impact, no no pun intended, of mm. what had happened. And we hadn't seen any of the visualisation that many others had yeah. in the news. Over and over and over. So what time of day is this? You must be mid-morning or day, or was it night time by no, then? No, it was mid-morning, yeah. uh, so about halfway through the flight uh, when we got diverted. So probably about 10.30, uh, 11 o'clock in the morning local time. On September 11, 2001. Yeah, and we were one of 38 aeroplanes. So you had a, a town called Gander mm. that woke up that morning – 9,300 for breakfast. And in three hours, they found themselves serving 16,000 for supper. Where's the emergency plan? How do you you cope and cater to that sort of an influx that happens when normally you have one or two flights a week that arrive in that airport? And you don't have a dedicated catastrophic emergency person in Gander. You had the policeman, the one policeman in town sitting on the side of the road, wasn't he, on a traffic stop Yep. and someone pulled over and told him what had happened. Absolutely. So even if you think about the transmission of information today, we're getting information in real time. Yeah, yeah. Back then you got whatever the the news was reporting or the radio was reporting. So when you look at a gander waking up 9,300 for breakfast, and then you've got to say, well, how do we cater for 7,000 passengers? We have to set up um, a full immigration service. We have to set up a full security service. Because security was a huge issue. Obviously there was a war situation 
south of the border and Canada's just right there. Well, Newfoundland's up higher. But. So question, I think from having seen the play, you were, le- you were kept on the plane for a long time, weren't you? We were. Uh, we, we ended up uh, being on our plane for 24 hours oh, in the plane on the tarmac. One. Yeah. Um, so we had the BBC World Service uh, uh, informing us. And to be honest, I was in denial uh-huh. Because I really thought, oh, this is inconvenient. I've got to write that report. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in an hour, two max, we'll be back in the air. But minutes ticked into hours, which ticked into a full day, 24 hours in the plane. And that's when you got to uh, mingle with the other passengers, mm. 197 other passengers on the Justice One Boeing 777. I was sitting in seat 7K, mm. colleague next to me who started his journey in India some 36 hours prior to boarding our plane. We started to talk to each other mm. and we started to talk to people who, I know this might sound crazy, but people who are sitting in zoo, you know, and we we're in business class. <laughs> Normally, and you spoke to <laughs> yeah, them. we do. <laughs> well, we, we had to, I suppose, break down barriers. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the leadership we saw out of Captain Mike and his crew, mm. it could have been a much worse situation. You've seen the musical, mm. which I love. It's beautiful. Th- there's elements of which type of aeroplane were you on because some aeroplanes were told, the passengers were told by their uh, pilot that there was an issue with a plane. So how's that affecting your mindset as a ah. passenger? And then you get diverted and then you get told. So what are you believing? What are you not believing? Right. So you had clear communication with a good leader and the comms were from the best source available at the time, BBC World World News. Absolutely. Do you know, I didn't even realise it was 24 hours. I knew it was a long time. But that in itself is traumatic, isn't it? Because food, bathrooms, babies. Tell me about that first part of the whole experience. Well... We'll go back even half a step before that because yeah. on touchdown, uh, something jarred and the air conditioning system uh, oh, was God. malfunctioning. So the first thing they had to do was open the doors and we got given some very sage um, advice. Don't step off the aeroplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. The first step's a doozy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That Groundhog Day will yeah. come back to haunt you. Um, and I looked at that and I thought, well, this is good. Now, we didn't realise how long we were going to be there. As yeah. I said, uh, I was in denial. I thought it was going to be just a couple of hours. Mm. And so soon we found ourselves r- running out of food as we were ticking mm. towards that 24-hour period. We are running out of uh, even water. Yeah. So, so they they force alcohol on us. It was, it was dreadful. <laughs> How many cheese and biscuits packets yeah, can you have? Exactly, yeah. you know. But we 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 managed that, and it was only after we got off the airplane because you, you're sitting there, you're you're in that claustrophobic environment, mm. but you're able to walk around. You're able to start conversations with people that normally you wouldn't communicate with, mm. and. Soon the personalities started to emerge. Mm. Uh, the hospitality that we observed once we were cleared through immigration and, and uh, security meant that we were um, we saw big plates of Subway sandwiches or some cold KFC or pizza yeah. that were sitting there. And by that stage, we were ravenous. Yeah. We were happy to have anything. Yeah. Uh, but then again, we, we weren't sure what was going to happen because we were told – going to join a bus and you're going to get transported, in our case, about a 40-minute journey to uh, the Salvation Army in um, Gambo. Right. And that became our home for the next four days. 
Right. And again, that's where we saw the hospitality of the local start to expand beyond the the leadership that uh, uh, Claude Elliott, who was the mayor at the time, and the rest of the community, you know, put together to to just accommodate us, just make us feel secure, just put a an arm around us to make us feel warm and welcome. Was the whole plane, did the whole plane go to Gambo, your whole plane? Yeah, they tried to keep each community together. Mm. So 198 souls went to the Salvation Army. Um, a couple of us uh, ended up, not myself, but some of the other pastors ended up being hosted by local families. Mm. So they had a spare room. There was a lovely couple who were on their honeymoon. And um, thankfully, Teresa, um, we call her Mother Teresa, who was the Secretary of the Salvation Army, had had, had spent time, uh, another great leadership principle of walking slowly through the crowd to to recognise people in need and mm. saw this couple, figured out they were a, um, a honeymoon couple and organised with another congregant to have them stay at their house. I mean, let's be honest, if you had a choice of having a honeymoon in Las Vegas or a gambo at the Salvation Army, which would you choose? Totally. <laughs> No-brainer. So you weren't actually in Gander, so the musical must have been a compilation of what happened to you and people right there because my, your pilot didn't feature in the musical. It was the woman pilot who was amazing. Yep. When did you get to call home? Well, when I was actually on the aeroplane, um, we had the air phones. Mm. Uh, so it was in the little sort of hand rest beside my seat. Mm. And so I kept on swiping my credit card through that, trying to get hold of a, an external line. Um, it took me probably two and a half hours to get hold of my wife mm. back in New Zealand. And by the time I got hold of her, it was probably maybe 7 a.m. Mm. Uh, uh, or a bit earlier than that in, the, in New Zealand. She had a long night. She had a long night with a five-year-old, uh, sorry, five-month-old mm. uh, daughter. So, you know, uh, a good night's sleep interrupted by her husband. But I managed to get hold of my parents in the UK mm. and some of my family in the USA before I spoke to my wife just to, number one, find out they were okay. Number two, just make sure that they knew I was okay. Yeah, right. Okay. So tell us about the four days then, your experience. So we've already heard about leadership, communication, safety, psychological safety, basic needs met, cold pizza, cold KFC, Subway, Tim Hortons, donuts, surely <laughs> you're in Canada. No, <laughs> we're in Newfoundland. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, correct. <laughs> correct. You're right. Very different. Tell us about the four days. Uh, well, the four days um, started off in disbelief. In fact, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I was in denial mm. and having purchased a new tie, having slept 24 hours effectively in that plane with that new tie on, spent another four hours at the Salvation Army where we had the pews in their auditorium became our bed for some of us. Wow. Until the Red Cross, the Canadian uh, Army brought in some stretches, camp stretches, and that became my bed for a couple of days in a little room we saw downstairs. But during that time of that denial, four hours at the Salvation Army, another 24 um, in the airplane, I finally decided maybe, <laughs> maybe Toto, I'm not going to go home. Mm. So that's when I took my tie off, <laughs> folded it and put it inside my jacket pocket. Did you? Do you yeah. still have the tie? Um, no, unfortunately not. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've worn a tie in the no. last decade. No, no, <laughs> not in your T-shirt, your yeah. fantastic <laughs> Kiwi uh, pendant you're wearing today. Tell me more about that four days. What else did you learn about yourself? 
So denial, what else did you learn? Well, if I, if I think of some of the key lessons I learned, the very first lesson is look after yourself. Mm. The, the most important thing is that we ask for help. Mm. There are so many people who were going through different traumatic experiences, unsure about loved ones back either in New York or in Chicago or back in the UK, wherever they came from. So being able to sit there and ask for help is so important, especially in today's environment where we've had a traumatic event like COVID has come along and, mm. and shaken us all up. Understanding that, what what we talk about when we think of um an airline safety briefing, mm. what do they tell you to do when the oxygen mask comes on? Put down yourself first. Absolutely. Mm. So if that was the first thing that I, I learned and observed, the second thing is to expand and build your community. Mm. Look out for others. So the, the locals taught us that so well. Mm. They opened their homes for us. They allowed us to go over there to have a shower. They cooked and literally raided their, their fridges, their pantries, their freezers just to feed us. And honestly, it was a massive feast every single time we walked into the hall. Was it? Oh, absolutely. And and, and we, we had plenty to eat. Uh, we had uh, people with talent who came to the forefront. So uh, Julian Dawson, for example, one of the fellow passengers, was on his way to Tennessee to um, record a country and western album. Right. So he's a musician, so he gets up and he starts entertaining us. Mm. And then the kids got involved in that. So everybody had their little role to to uh, sort of figure through. But we knew that we had to stay as a community. Mm. We knew that we were only allowed off with our carry-on luggage, so you didn't have much. Right teaches you by the way pack a good carry on yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah and then you had a situation where you said okay if you're going to be going away we know that we can't leave unless every uh, single passenger is accounted for so we had a system put into place so the the attention to detail people came to the front within the community within our our flight right yeah so they they would uh, put together systems okay uh, if you're going to leave uh, write yourself out on this form here uh, put your destination where who you're going to go with and then uh, sign back in so we know that you're back or mm. if you're not back you know where we can find you mm. so it's those little elements that uh, start to um, impact you and you think to yourself good i don't have to think about that yeah. but i've got others who are thinking for me and you and I had that conversation on the way here about leading through others. Yes. That the worst thing a CEO can have to do is think of everything themselves. Absolutely. And so if there's people who are good at that, find them and let them do it. Systems and processes, that's really interesting. So was there tension within the community? Um, n not our community. I think that we uh, had... We had a baseline that started off with Captain Mike Ballard, who put us at ease. Uh, we had a group of um, competent leaders within our within our manifest on that plane. And were you one of them? Uh, yeah, I ended up being one of them. We had we had an issue at the church, and I say an issue. We we arrived there. Tuesday was the day of the flight. Yeah. Wednesday was when we arrived. We found out that on Thursday they were going to have a, a funeral the following day, Friday. Ah. And that's when you suddenly think, well, crikey, you've got a, a family who want to mourn their lost mm. one. How do you give them the dignity to mm. say a farewell when mm. you have 197 bodies? Hanging around. Yeah. yeah. 
there's carry-on luggage strewn all over the mm. the uh, uh, auditorium. So we had to step up, and and um, we had some great leaders who came through and said, "Hey, look, let's get together. Let's put uh, an escape committee together. Let us allocate the task and, and work the way through." I, I was one of the dozen people that came forward to say, "Yep, I'll help. I'll lead," mm. and we took it upon ourselves to tidy up everything, to clean the toilets, to vacuum the facility, to uh, get people out of the building so that the family could have their farewell Mm. uh, and support them in a way that you would never have known 197 or 198 other people had been residing in there earlier. Mm. So it's also letting leaders lead and giving people meaningful things to do. Absolutely. We're all looking for that meaningful activity. We don't just want to sit around. Mm. Uh, people want to be productive, I think, in some fashion or another. So the, the other thing that I learned in this process was that it was about not just production. Mm. It was about relationships. And I got taught that ironically on my first night, full night at the uh, Salvation Army. Having waited till everybody went to bed, I'd uh, allocated one of those portable cots for myself downstairs in a room with uh, five other uh, passengers. And I went upstairs, waited until everybody left. Close to midnight, I fired up my laptop, started to write my report. Sitting next to me was a lovely 60... You were writing your report still. Oh, please. (laughs) It was my number one focus step, honestly. And you had a free pass on that report. Well, I... I didn't realise that. You didn't know. No. Yeah. yeah. And and as I sat there and this lovely um, uh, local congregant, I'd say she would be in her mid-60s, mm. with her knitting needles, knitting away, starts chatting to me. Hey, are, uh, how are you? Where are you from? Are you married? Do you have kids? Out came uh, the, uh, the, uh, the snapshots of all of her four mm. grandkids. Yeah. And I'm thinking, leave me alone. I've I got a report. Need- yeah, exactly. Yeah, priority. And after maybe about 15, 20 minutes, I realised... I don't have to write the report. Yeah. Shut the laptop and started talk to her. If we can come back and remember it's about relationships. Mm. Mm. So you said, um, and I know I'm pressing the point, but it's hard to imagine 197 people, some people stepping up and saying we'll be the leaders. I've seen the movies, not about this, but I've read Lord of the Flies. Surely there were cliques or dynamics or something that was going on in that broader community that threatened the um, security and harmony of what had to happen. Well, we we did have a continuation of the total security um, from um, United Airways back in head office in Chicago. So every person on the plane was being secretary screenings. Yeah. And the beauty of it all is that whilst you did have a couple of issues where people maybe with uh, Mediterranean mm. or Middle Eastern backgrounds, and mm. of course, um, I, I was a prime target, uh, mm. theoretically. Mm. I was born in Libya, North Africa, not mm. the best country to be associated with. No. Uh, I spoke uh, Arabic. Um, that's the, one of the first languages I learned. Uh, I was a Greek, you know, living in New Zealand from the UK. Mm. So pretty... Mm. messy sort of character but the nice thing is that it was the leadership that we first saw through captain mike ballard so in his statement what he effectively said was three things number one you're not in trouble Mm. number two we believe in you and number three we're here to help and that principle you know came through what we saw at the salvation army 
and everything else fell into place. So we we had a lot more harmony mm. than disharmony in that uh, group mm. of people. So leadership really drove the culture through all of that, didn't it? Yeah, it's leadership that I've uh, looked back at because at the time you don't you don't recognise mm. that, but when you look back and you see the, the fingerprints all over the place of what was happening, leadership played a significant role uh, on so many levels from the the the, the the, the team at the Salvation Army through to the crew and the pilots United Airlines UA929 back into people like uh, uh, Claude Elliott and the the local police mm. back to us as the plane people. Mm, the plane people. How did you help people who weren't coping? Well, we'd say alcohol. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I, I don't think that I was consciously trying to do that. I, I, I probably refer back to people like Teresa, Mother Teresa, who mm. was the Secretary of Salvation mm. Army. She was the person who then said to others who needed privacy to grieve, mm. to go and use her office, who needed to phone family and friends uh, all the way across Australia, for example, mm. to then use a private cell phone. Mm. And it's that level of understanding that they t- they pulled out all the stops to mm. help us and mm. we arrived as strangers we became friends mm. and we left as family it's amazing did you kiss a fish i've seen the play <laughs> <laughs> no thankfully the kiss didn't, the fish didn't kiss me either <laughs> yeah 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 that's that's good to know you have to you have to see the stage show to know this reference there must have been patchy communication about when are we getting out because after all of that denial, coping, acceptance, then it must have been a big thing of when are we out of here, when are we out of here, when are we out of here? Well, you talk about Apache Communications. Uh, we didn't have uh, a lot of phones set up when we first arrived or internet uh, uh, available. Mm. That was set up pretty quickly by the local community. But every day, uh, Captain Mike and the crew would come in and give us an update. Mm-hmm. And they were as honest as they could be under the circumstances. So whilst there was no definitive date, when we finally got the final go-ahead, we knew we had to act straight away. So the constant communication it doesn't have to be yeah. uh, comprehensive but it has to be consistent i'll tell you i'll talk to you even if i have nothing else to say correct yeah and so was it quick when you got the final go ahead was it we're going everyone pack up we're out right now absolutely or we we had that uh, okay now we got to go it was 2 a.m yeah. and we had to pack everybody into the buses and tick them all off uh, the yeah. manifest and then once we were on the last bus the the escape committee got on the last bus as i got to the bus my fellow business class passenger was sitting next to me. He looks at me and he rather, you know, cheekily smiles and he says, Elias, where's your lucky tie? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So you went the, so what happened to the flight? Did you go to Chicago or you went home? Yeah, we eventually uh, came through to Chicago. So they continued to the final destination. We had uh, maybe about four hours at the airport, five hours as they prepared the airplane, uh, took uh, uh, about half a dozen passengers through secondary screening. But once we were eventually on board, identified our luggage, which uh, we hadn't seen yeah. since we landed. Uh, then we we were in an environment where we said, okay, we're, we're taking off now. Chicago became the next stop and then they continued us on to our final destination, which in my case was back to New Zealand via LA. Wow. How was your wife through all of this? 
um, probably glad that she was in uh, in New Zealand. Yeah. She, had, she had enough to take care of our daughter yeah. and things along those lines. But within um, probably three or four months, uh, probably three months, we were back in the plane again. And we flew all the way back to the UK and uh, Greece with our daughter. Mm. I was going to say, how did that affect you flying? It didn't affect me flying. I, I knew I had to get back on an aeroplane and you've got it. It's like, uh, you know, you fall off a bike, get yeah. back on the bike. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't realise was the uh, psychological impact it had on me. It took me quite a while to process that. And I did, uh, and I would recommend this. I said, one of the first things we learn is look after yourself. It's okay to ask for help. Mm. And I think back then we didn't have access to mental health advocates mm. and other mm. programs that we could look at, mm. counselling, etc. Mm. So I'd say that uh, if I learned a lesson, it's to encourage people, leaders included, to to go in and seek that sort of uh, counselling and help and support. And, you know, when you – and I know you now and I know how reflective you are and would have been – what was the psychological impact about? Which part was it that hit you? It was a mental uh, issue and, and to me it came together because I only saw the images of the aeroplanes yeah. crashing in. We were at the Salvation Army because they'd set up a, a TV with yeah. grainy, you know, rabbit ears, uh, aerial, and I saw it once and only once. Other passengers were watching the TV over consistently and over, over and over. And um, uh, eventually when I went to somebody's house, maybe two days into the trip to have my shower, yeah. I sat there with uh, the, the host family, mm. cup of tea and waiting for my turn. And I was listening and watching CNN. Yeah. And, um, and they, they shared the voice recordings of the messages. Wow. And that's what got me. Wow. And there was that psychology of, oh, my goodness, that yeah. could have been me leaving a message for my family. Yeah. And that's when you realise how vulnerable you are yeah. and the vulnerability doesn't go away uh, mm. soon. No, no, it doesn't. How has this impacted your life? Well, I'm still here, which is a good thing. Good, yeah, I can see that, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, over over time, uh, I've been able to um, learn from this experience and grow stronger. I've been sharing this message uh, uh, internationally mm. uh, and publicly for quite a while now. The first time I think I've spoken, it was in 2014, before yeah. Come From Away uh, became the musical that we all know. Mm. Uh, and to me, it's about uh, strengthening myself and helping others to find the strength mm. uh, because when we get a catastrophe like 9-11, mm. what happened? Everything stopped, mm. literally. Uh, airlines were grounded. Um, tourism news uh, in, in New York City evaporated mm. almost instantaneously. The speaking industry I was involved with, well, that gone. stopped, gone. Mm. Sorry, did I say 9-11? Because I, I could have said global financial crisis. I could have said COVID exactly. or Delta yeah. or something else is going to come in the future. Yeah. And we have to realise that we got through because that was the third lesson we learned. If yeah. the first lesson was look after yourself, the yeah. second one was to build and expand your community. The third lesson is to change the rules. Okay, go on. That's interesting. Yeah, because you can't, you know, betting on your past, mm. but, or rather betting on your future based on your past mm. is flawed. Things change and you've got to adapt to that change. And you've got to realise that we can get through. Yes, it's not going to be the same, but if we work together, we can change the rules mm. and figure out something. So there's a strong element of backing yourself in there, isn't there? For you've all got, three of those. Yep. That having a 
fundamental faith in your own resilience and, and yes, the people around you. But to look after yourself first, you have to back yourself. You do. It, and it's not an easy one, especially for, um, for males. Mm. We're notoriously bad at putting up masks, so everything's okay. She'll be right. So that's a common uh, phrase mm. back in New Zealand. But it's not right. Mm. And you've got to understand that. You've got to be willing to support others and seek support. And during COVID, I remember a good friend of mine, Bill, would always phone me at least once a week just to check in. Hey, Elias, how's it going? Mm. How are you doing? He had maybe two dozen, three dozen people on his list. Mm. And that short, I'm here to help, mm. goes back to Captain Mike. Mm. You're not in trouble. I'm here to help. We believe in you. I love that. You're not in trouble. Isn't that great? Because, of course, you're born in Libya. Oh, and at that time, years ago it must be now, in one of our earliest Tech Live podcasts, I spoke to Will Mera, a young doctor who got lost in the snow in New Zealand on his own. And he was he was really in trouble. And I asked him if he spoke to himself through it. And he said, I remember him saying, good boy, Will. Good boy, Will. Well done. Good boy, Will. Good boy, Will. How do you work with yourself in adversity? Well, the, the first real challenge is to um, understand and define which voice is talking to you. Yeah. Because you have all these different voices mm. and you can go back and listen to some of the negative voices from your youth. You're, you're, um, you can think of many different things and different people have different voices, I'm sure. So it's understanding your voice, but coming back to some routine mm. that can help you to, to lessen all the stress Mm. out of your life mm. because obviously stress causes you to think in the wrong way mm. uh, causes the panic to to come in mm. and having to talk to yourself and and reprogram yourself that's what took me the largest amount of time uh, after 9 11 mm. was spending time in personal development surrounding myself with good people to change that inner dialogue and it's still a work in progress to be honest Steph. Mm. yeah i know i understand that i understand it it's interesting that you say that about routine because through COVID, through lockdown, lockdowns, the routine became really important, didn't it? Absolutely. Five o'clock, finish work, I'll go and sit on that chair out there and do the phone calls or whatever. Yeah, that's really interesting. I do speak to myself like Will. I was really interested to hear Will do it because I hear myself when it's getting, it's, you're okay, Steph, you're okay, Steph, you're okay, Steph, and I actually say that. So that voice comes out. So you are embarking on an interesting next stage, becoming a, a chair of tech. So you're going to be a mentor and a, and a guide for CEOs and business owners through both their business and personal challenges and, and opportunities. How does this incredible life experience fit into that next stage for you? Well, look, number one, it's uh, an honour and a privilege to join the tech family. And I see some incredible leaders I've met over uh, the last month mm. who are chairs in our community. And they are incredibly established and, and well-proven business leaders in their own right. And then we look at the new business leaders that we will be impacting through the new tech groups that I'll be involved with and our community uh, of tech chairs in New Zealand as mm. an example. And to me, everything rises and falls on leadership. So if we can get that correct, then I can help influence leaders who influence their organisation, that influences their community. Mm. 
And if we can trickle this down from the top down, it'll help us achieve uh, one of the goals that I've always had, which is to positively impact a million households around the world. But I can't do that by myself. But I need those leaders, those CEOs, to positively impact their organization, their employees, their suppliers, their, uh, their customers, so we can trickle this through and change our local community. It's not very often you meet someone with such a clear why. It's not very often that you meet someone with such an amazing story. And what I love about what you've done with this story, Elias, is you have applied it to the world and that we see that we're all part of that. It's an incredible story and it's a happy story as well. But when you watch people singing about it on stage with a lot of foot stomping, it's it's a really happy story. But thank you for breaking it down for us from a leadership perspective. Thank you for being here with us today and here in our community. Wonderful to have you. Thank you again, Elias Canaris. Thank you. Discover more about tech at tech.com.au. 